Welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. Happy graduation weekend. Can we give a big round of applause to everybody that's graduating this weekend? We are, uh, we're so proud of you guys. We're so grateful for you guys. We're all a little bit better dressed today because of it, okay? And I've been told that this service can't go long because there are graduations following it, okay? So we'll go fast. Um, hey, one of the things that marked Jesus's ministry, and you'll notice this if you read through the scriptures, is that he was very aware and concerned for the physical needs that were around him. So as he went out, he preached the gospel in word, that was his primary mission, but he also demonstrated the gospel in deed. So that's why he would man, feed the hungry, he would minister to the sick, he would heal the hurting, right? He often did these physical demonstrations as an illustration of the spiritual principle he was teaching. And that was really what characterized his ministry. Well, as a church, we wanna be characterized by the same thing. We wanna be a people who proclaim the gospel in word and also demonstrate the gospel indeed in our community which is why we ask every single one of our missional communities, which is how we do small groups here, we ask every single one of our groups to develop a partnership with a nonprofit in our community. And you guys do an incredible job of that. I mean, we've got ministry happening all over our community with all kinds of different worthy nonprofits. But here's the thing, once a year, we like to come together as a church and we like to pour fuel on the fire of what our church is already doing. And we call that event, Serve the City. Okay, Serve the City is coming up on Saturday, June 17th, and here's what we wanna do. In a single day, we wanna invest hundreds of volunteer hours and thousands of dollars into nonprofits in our community in Jesus' name. We wanna take one day out of the summer and just say, man, Jesus cares about you, Jesus loves you, and so do we. So that's what we wanna do, but in order to pull it off, we need your help, okay? We need your help to pull it off. So here's what we've done. Our team has worked with local nonprofits to create hundreds of volunteer opportunities for you and your family so that on Saturday, June 17th, you can come and you can demonstrate the love of God to our community in action. Okay, participating in Serve the City will be so fun. It will help you become more like Jesus, it will. It will help your kids learn what it means to become more like Jesus. It will strengthen our witness in the community and you will get a free t-shirt, okay? So it's like, what else do you want, everybody, okay? All right, so Mark 10, 45, Jesus said this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We want that to characterize our church in this community and serve the city is one of the major ways that we do that. So I hope you'll mark your calendars. I hope you'll plan to join us Saturday, June 17th. We'll have serving opportunities in the morning and in the evening, lots of different opportunities, lots of kid-friendly opportunities. For all the details and RSVP, you can go to centerseville.com backslash STC, serve the city. Go ahead and grab your volunteer slot. And we'll be talking about it in the next couple of weeks because we're really excited and it's not that far away, okay? So man, let's just pray. Let's ask God to help us be a shining light in this community through service. And we'll jump into Colossians. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that you came as a servant and because you served, we are saved. And now we want to serve others in light of our salvation. So would you help us to be a church that does that? God, I know there's so many things going on. I know that it's so easy to get uh, Lord, worn out by the, the responsibilities of life. But I just pray, God, that you would bless our efforts on the 17th to be a shining light in this community and that you'd be glorified in it. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Colossians chapter three, starting in verse one. Colossians chapter three, starting in verse one. So in 1987, the Irish rock band U2 released the song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Yeah, somebody likes that song. And uh, man, that song has sold millions of copies worldwide, and many critics consider it one of the greatest songs that's ever been written. 
Now, what's interesting about that song is it's a song about spiritual longing. It's a song about spiritual longing that Bono admits he was inspired to write by American gospel music, right? And, and when you read the lyrics, you're like, man, that's what he's talking about. Let me just read you some of the things that Bono sings. He says, I've climbed the highest mountain. I've run through the fields. I've spoken with the tongue of angels. I've held the hand of a devil, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And he just repeats that phrase over and over and over again in the song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that song has resonated with millions of people across cultures and across generations. And I think the reason is because it is describing this deep yearning that we all have in our hearts for what the Bible calls life, abundant life. You see, God created us to find abundant life in him. And if we don't have abundant life in him, we find ourselves uh, looking and looking and looking and not being able to find it. The truth is, man, we're all like Bono. Isn't that fun? You get to be like Bono this morning. That's a cool thing to be like. The truth is we're all like Bono. We're all looking for something to satisfy our souls, whether it's an education or family or career or romance. We are all looking for life. Well, in Colossians chapter three, Paul makes quite a claim. He claims that the life we're looking for is found in Christ. That the life we're looking for is found in Christ, not in a job, not in a relationship, not in an experience, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And to help us experience that life, Paul calls us to put to death three areas of sin that dishonor God, hurt us, and impede our experience of true abundant life in Christ. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at the first couple of verses and just see that Paul says, your life is in Christ. It's not in anywhere else. And then we're gonna look at the last section of verses where Paul says, since that's the case, put these things to death so that it won't impede your experience of life in Christ. All right, look at verse one with me. It says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We'll stop there. Paul begins this section with an if-then statement, an if-then statement. Another way to translate that would be since, okay? Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And Paul down in verse two says basically the same thing. He says, set your mind on things that are above for or because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, here's what this verse is showing us, and it's extremely important. In the Christian life, identity always precedes activity. Identity always precedes activity. Notice, it is not seek the things above so you will be in Christ. Rather, it is seek the things that are above because you already are in Christ. And if you're new to Christianity or you're just sort of coming back to church or checking things out, this is really important to understand who comes before do? Who comes before do? What Christians do is always a result of who Christians are in Christ. The problem is the human instinct is to reverse this order. I've told you before that I've had conversations with people from the American South and Southeast Asia, and they think the same thing. If I wanna get into heaven, if I wanna know God, I've gotta do good things. And if I do enough good things, then God will be happy with me. And then I'll be able to know him and I'll be able to go to heaven. But friends, that is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And anytime someone says to me like, hey, yeah, like all the religions basically teach the same thing. I know immediately they've never read the Bible. Have you ever actually read the Bible? 
Can you name like any good person in the Bible other than Jesus? It's pretty hard. It's like all horrible people and Jesus. That's what you've got in the Bible. And the point is it's not about you being good enough to earn your way into heaven. You're never gonna be good enough. The point of the scriptures is God is far too holy. You are far too sinful to ever earn your way into a relationship with him. That's the bad news of the scriptures. It's not happening. It's not happening. But the good news of the scriptures is that God is a rescuer. And so when we could do nothing to save ourselves, God at great cost to himself sent Jesus Christ to save us, the one good character in all of the scriptures. And Jesus came to the world and he lived the life that we should have lived, a life of perfect righteousness. And then he died the death that we were condemned to die. He paid for our sins on the cross. The cross didn't have his name on it, it had our name on it. He rose again in victory, demonstrated he had defeated Satan's sin and death. And now, and this is amazing, he offers new life to anyone who would repent and trust in him. Friends, that's the message of the Bible. That's the gospel. And what Paul is saying is, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been born again to a living hope in him, if that is true of you, then start to live in such a way, man, that cultivates that life. Don't don't live in such a way that creates division between you and Christ, but live in such a way that that creates intimacy between you and your savior. You see, Paul is saying identity precedes activity. It's not seek the things above so you will be in Christ, it's seek the things above because you already are. So here's the question. Have you been raised with Christ? Have you been raised with Christ? Because what I would say is it's easy to come to church and to try to do all the things that you hear the preacher saying and just to get frustrated and angry and worn out and overwhelmed and be like, religion is just one long list of things I don't wanna do. If that's, if that's the case for you, it's probably because you haven't been raised in Christ. Instead of trying to do all the things, I would say consider Jesus. Consider your state before God, receive eternal life in him and then live in response to that. So the question is, have you been raised in Christ? And if you have, if you hear and you say, yes, Josh, I have been raised to new life in Christ. I know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Then what Paul is gonna say is, okay, if that's true, lean into that. Make that the foundation of your identity. Make that what drives your activity in life. Don't be shaped by the ideas of this world, but instead set your mind on things above where Christ is. Look at verse three. Paul says, for you have died. That is your old life has died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, you see that word again, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the Greek word that Paul uses there that's translated life is the word zoe, zoe. And zoe doesn't just mean physical life. Zoe refers to the absolute fullness of life, which belongs to God and is experienced by his people. The absolute fullness of life, which belongs to God and is is experienced by his people, it it refers to physical, emotional, spiritual fullness. It's, It's what the Jews used to refer to as shalom, as wholeness, what we might today call the good life. The good life, that abiding sense of satisfaction and joy that is the good life. And the truth is, man, we're all looking for Zoe. We're all looking for Zoe. The college student who plunges into the party scene is looking for life. The young adult who is consumed with career ambition is looking for life. The little league dad living vicariously through his kid is looking for life. Now, we are all looking for life. One British author put it this way, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel door is unconsciously looking for God. 
The young man who rings the bell at the brothel doors unconsciously looking for God. We are all looking for life. And here's what we often think, you ready? We often think, if I had more, I'd have life. You ever thought that? If I had more money, more success, more time, more comfort, more letters behind my name, then I would have life. Or you ever thought this? If they would stop, then I'd have life. You ever thought that? Like if my supervisor would stop, if, if my parents would stop, if my kids would stop, if that political party would stop, then I would have life. But the truth is, friends, what Paul is saying is there is no life in accumulation and there is no life to be found in circumstantial change. But the life that you are created for, the zoe that you long for is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.4 is a really powerful verse. It's the way that the apostle John introduces Jesus in his gospel, okay? And this is what he says. In him was life. That's Zoe. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, what John is saying is true abundant life is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. John uses that word Zoe 47 times in his gospel because what he's trying to show us is, look, God didn't come to take from you. God came to give you the thing that you can't find on your own. He came to restore to you what you were created to have in him, which is abundant life. Life. And the life that we find in Christ is so much better than the life that the world offers. You see back in verse three where Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ? Kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? That phrase hidden with Christ means that your life is safe and secure in him. It's wrapped up in him. No one can assail it or attack it or take it away. No economic downturn or political election can take away your life in Christ because it is hidden in him. That is Paul's fundamental claim. The life that you long for, the life that Bono's looking for, the life that we all desire is found in Jesus. But if that's the case, here's a fair objection to ask. Josh, why doesn't my life feel abundant? Right, if I'm in Christ, why don't I feel the fullness of life that you say I'm supposed to have? Man, why do I still feel empty? Why do I still feel unhappy? Why do I still feel distant from God if I'm in Christ? And the answer is that in Christ, our positional standing with God is fixed, but our experience of God is dynamic. Our positional standing with God as sons or daughters is fixed in Jesus Christ. The moment you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That is fixed, that is final. That's your positional standing with God. But what the scriptures teach us is that our ongoing experience with God is dynamic. That means it changes. And if you've been a Christian for more than a week, you know that's true. You have seasons that you felt very close to God, like you were learning about God, like you were walking with God, and you had seasons that felt very, very dry and like God was very distant. And why is that? What is it that causes our relationship to change? Well, sometimes it's based on life stage, right? Sometimes it's based on circumstances. Sometimes it's based on decisions. There's no formula that the Bible gives us for experiencing deep intimacy with Christ every single time. I wish I could come up here and give you like A, B, C, and it'll happen, but you know from experience that that's not true, right? Sometimes you do all the right things and you still feel far from God, and those are moments that you walk by faith. And you say, even though I don't feel close to God, even though I don't feel his love, I know that he does love me, and he demonstrated his love for me in this, that Jesus Christ died for me. 
But that doesn't mean we can't do anything. In fact, part of what Paul is gonna be is like, let me give you some things you can do to help cultivate your experience with Christ. I've heard one pastor describe it this way. Um, you can put your head underneath the faucet and wait for God to turn on the water. Okay, and that's what Paul is gonna say. And, and, and here's what Paul says, you ready? If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. You see, when we seek the things that are above, when we set our minds on heavenly things, we tend to experience the presence of God more actively in our life. And when we put our head under the faucet, oftentimes God will turn on the water. But if we don't put our head under the faucet, it doesn't matter if the water's on because we haven't put ourselves there. The phrase set your minds, you see that phrase in, in the text? That means to seek out. It's a phrase that's marked by aspiration, desire, and passion. Aspiration, desire, and passion. And here's what we all know. The truth is we all set our minds on something. We all set our minds on something. It might be a hobby. It might be a relationship. It might be a graduate program. It might be a beach body. It might be your grandchildren. But we all set our minds on something. We aspire and desire and have passion for something. And what Paul is saying is we need to set our desire and our aspiration and our minds on Christ. We need to seek to find our pleasure and our delight in him. I love how Maurice Roberts puts it. The soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. That was kind of heavy. You ready for me to translate that into like the Josh sixth grade version? You ready for this? In other words, your soul is hungry. Feed it with a heavenly diet. The truth is your soul is hungry. It will consume something. And what we get to choose is, will we consume a heavenly diet that draws us to Christ, that helps us feel intimacy with him, or will we consume a worldly diet that fills us so up with junk food that we don't really experience the abiding relationship with Jesus that we are designed to experience? That's what Paul is driving at. Cultivate your love of God. Theologians refer to this as vivification. That's a fun word, isn't it? Vivification, that's just a Latin word that means to bring to life. Drop that into your conversation this week. You know, be like, I've just been trying to vivify my garden in the backyard, you know? And people be like, I, you went to graduate school, didn't you? You know, vivification, to bring to life. Here's the thing, when we think about Christian growth, we tend to think about stopping things, right? And like, fair enough. But one of the best ways to grow in your relationship with Christ is to feed it. It's not just trying to stop doing bad things, but to vivify, to bring to life your love of Jesus. Uh, this, this principle came home to me when, one semester in seminary. So my first semester in seminary, I worked in landscaping, just trying to make ends meet. And I worked for this guy who owned this huge estate. I mean, acres and acres uh, of land. And it was beautiful. I mean, ornamental trees and these lush grasses and, and all this stuff. And he had so much land that he hired seminary students to come out and maintain it for him. So about 25 hours a week, I would cut grass and you know, fertilize trees and you know, trim hedges and all the things. Um, and one, a couple months in, I realized there are no weeds here. And I was like, how did he do that? You know, like what, like what happened? So I asked my boss, I was like, hey, how is it that we like never have to pull any weeds? And what my boss told me has always stuck with me. He said, if you strengthen the grass enough, you don't have to worry about the weeds. 
You see, if you cultivate, if you fertilize, if you strengthen the grass and the roots are deep and the roots are strong, there's actually not much room for the weeds to get in there and grow because the grass is so strong. You might have to pull a couple, but by and large, your weed problem is dealt with because of how strong your grass is. You tracking with me? The same thing is true of your relationship with Jesus. When your relationship with Jesus is satisfying and thrilling and life-giving and vibrant, you don't have to pull nearly as many weeds. Because imagine you came over to my house for dinner and I said, hey, I'm so glad that you're here for dinner. I have two options for you. I grilled a sirloin steak and we have some hamburger helper. Which would you prefer? Some of you are like hamburger helper. Shame on you, shame on you, right? When you see the better portion, you take your, it's, I'm not tempted by, you know when I'm tempted by hamburger helper? At 11.30 at night. That's what, and I'm like hungry. And I'm like, this is a bad decision, right? But when I see the better portion, I take it. Man, that's what Paul is saying. Set your minds on the better thing. Set your minds on Jesus Christ. And when you do, you will be less tempted by the weeds of this world. So here's my question. What stirs your affection for Jesus? What stirs your affection for Jesus? Maybe it's something as simple as being outside. And the most spiritual thing you could do is go for the hike. Maybe it's keeping a journal. Maybe it's listening to worship music. Maybe it's reading missionary biographies. Maybe it's meeting up with another believer over coffee. I don't know what it is, but do you know what the things are that stir your affection for Jesus? Whatever those things are, press into them. Pretty much everything we do as a church is designed to stir your affection for Jesus. Everything. That's what our worship service is about. That's what our MCs are about. That's what night of worship and prayer is about. That's what service city is about. It's all about how do we help stir your affection for Jesus? How do we help vivify a love of God in your life? Because I fully believe that when our love for Jesus is strong and abiding and satisfying and good, man, we simply won't be tempted by the weeds of the world in the same way. All right, so verse one through four, Paul claims that your abundant life, not just generally, your abundant life, your zoe, the thing you want, that I want, that we all want, is found in Christ. And hear me, when we find abundant life in Jesus, it glorifies him. It glorifies him and it's good for us. So it's a win-win, okay? It glorifies him, it's good for us, and it's good for the church. So to quote Michael Scott, it's a win-win-win, okay? It's a win-win-win. But then Paul's gonna transition in verse five. And he's gonna say, hey, since your true life is found in Christ, put to death things which impede your relationship. And that makes sense, right? If this is where life comes from and there's these things over here that get in the way of it, Paul's like, hey, put those things to death. And Paul's gonna basically gonna draw out three areas of sin that impede our relationship with Christ, that dishonor him, hurt us, and and impede our life. He's gonna say, put them to death. Look at verse five with me. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly, earthly is just the opposite of heavenly, earthly in you. Now, you see that word therefore? Okay, hopefully I've taught you this bad pastor joke. When you see therefore, ask what it's there for, right? Ask what it's there for. Bad joke, but you'll remember it. Okay, why is that verse there? Therefore is referring back to your life in Christ. You see, Paul can't stop reminding us that identity comes before activity, okay? So we're gonna talk a lot about activity for the next like 25 minutes, and I need you to remember that it's rooted in your identity, okay? You do these things because you're raised in Christ, not to be raised in Christ. He says, since you've discovered Zoe in Christ, put to death what is earthly in you. Guys, that phrase put to death is remarkably, remarkably strong. I mean, in the Greek, it is a very strong word. It's like exterminate. It totally get rid of, annihilate from your life. Do you know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean manage. It doesn't mean entertain. It doesn't mean mess around with. 
It doesn't mean ignore. It means actively, persistently, aggressively attack. That is what the phrase means. Sometimes people will be like, why is the church always talking about sin and putting sin to death? Because the Bible is always talking about it. Because sin hates you and sin wants to destroy you. And sin, 1 Peter 2.11 says, is waging war against your soul. If you have cancer in your body, waging war against your body, you do everything you can to put it to death. In the same way, Paul would say, when you've got sin in your flesh, waging war against your soul, you've gotta do everything you can to put it to death. Theologians call this mortification. So vivification means to bring to life. Mortification means to put to death. And growing in Christ involves both. It involves yeses and nos, vivification and mortification, putting on and putting off. Can I be honest with you? I wish that we grew out of sin. Wouldn't that be great? You ever have something you just grew out of? You know, you're like, I used to do this annoying thing and I just grew out of it. I wish that's how sin works. It's just not. Do you ever wish, I always also wish that you could just ignore sin and it would go away. You know, you ever done that with something and it worked and you're like, could I do this with other things in my life? You know, like I just ignored that and that went away. Um, but you just can't. Sin isn't something that you grow out of. Sin isn't something that you can ignore and it will go away. Sin is something that must be actively put to death. Actively put to death. And unfortunately, it is a lifelong process. Lifelong process. It's not a once and for all experience. I can't preach an incredible sermon and we have an incredible worship set and it's like, boom, I had the moment, it's over, I've won. It is a lifelong process. It's a daily battle. Why is that? Well, notice what Paul said. Do you see what he says? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, that's an, important, that's an important phrase. You see, the reason we have to continually put sin to death is because sin dwells within us in what the Bible calls our flesh. Our flesh. The flesh isn't your body. The flesh is the part of you and the part of me that wants to do the opposite of what God desires wants to do the exact opposite of what God desires. The flesh is why you have to teach kids to share and to tell the truth. You don't have to teach kids to say mine and to lie because they come into the world as seven pound, six ounce balls of flesh. That's what they come into the world as. And we love them and pray for them, but that's what we have to teach them. Here's what theologians would say. In Christ, if you're in Christ, we are set free from the penalty of sin. That is condemnation. We're no longer condemned. In Christ, we're set free from the power of sin. The Holy Spirit in us has given us the strength to say no to sin. We don't have to sin anymore, but we have not yet been set free from the presence of sin. Man, until that we die and go to be with Jesus or he returns, we will have to be in this daily battle with our flesh and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. This week, one of our staff members said, um, she's recently married and she said, you know, people told me getting married would help me put sin to death and that sounded great until it started happening and it felt like dying. And all the married people said, amen, but not too loudly, you know, amen. amen. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. It doesn't feel good to put sin to death. So here's what I'd say. If you're here and you're struggling against sin and you're a little discouraged because you feel like, man, I feel like I take two steps forward and one step back. What I would say is like, you're doing the right thing. Like that's the experience of every Christian. That's, go read Romans chapter seven. That's what Paul is saying. He's like, why do I keep doing the things that I don't wanna do? And then he explodes into gratitude in Romans chapter eight that he's safe in Jesus Christ. So if, man, if you're, if you're struggling against it, you're trying to put it to death, but it's just like two steps forward, one step back, man, be encouraged. That's the spirit in you. Man, you're fighting the good fight of the faith. Man, way to go. If you're here and you don't think sin is a big deal and you're just like, ah, I just sort of show up to church a little bit and I, I don't really think sin is a big deal. Or there's a whole area in my life that's obviously sin, but I, I'm just like letting it alone. I tell you, be warned. Paul's saying, this is serious. 
Sin is not your friend. Sin is out to harm you and the people closest to you, so put it to death. And Paul is gonna walk us through three different areas of sin specifically that he wants to put to death. Now, here's what I know. When I talk about sin generally, it's uncomfortable, but it's better than when I talk about it specifically. But that's what Paul does. So we're gonna have to talk about some specific uncomfortable sins, okay? Verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, at first, you might not notice it, but the first four phrases Paul uses all have to do with sexual sin. They all have to do, in the Greek language, with sexual sin. So sexual immorality refers to any sexual intercourse outside of biblically defined marriage. Impurity is a wider ranging word that refers to any sin that's sexual in nature. Passion describes a state of mind that is seeking out sinful sexual opportunity. Evil desire refers to the misordered sexual desires that lead us to sinful sexual action. And then Paul drops in covetousness. Isn't that kind of weird? It's kind of strange in this list, which is why I believe, and many commentators believe that he's referring to coveting someone else's spouse. That in the same way that in the 10 commandments, God says, do not covet another man's spouse. Or another man. that, that's what he's talking about, like covetousness that leads to adultery. So Paul warns us, he's gonna warn us about the danger of sexual sin. But to understand the danger of sexual sin, you have to understand the goodness of God's design for sexuality. You see, sometimes people think that God is anti-sex, but it's actually the opposite. I mean, you know what the first command in the Bible is, okay? This is from the Bible, not from Josh. God looks at a naked husband and a naked wife and says, be fruitful and multiply, I'll be back in a while. Okay, that's literally all uncomfortable. That's what it says, that's what happens. There's an entire book of the Old Testament devoted to the goodness of, of intimacy within marriage. It's called the Song of Solomon. Jewish boys were not allowed to read it until they were 13 years old, right? It's just, it's just true, it is God's idea. It is his design, and when we walk in it according to his design, it brings life. But because it is such a great blessing, because it is such a powerful tool, when we do not walk into it, in it according to God's design, when it is corrupted by the evil one, it brings incredible destruction, which is why Paul says, put it to death. Don't mess around with it, get rid of it. And then in verse six, Paul makes it even heavier. Verse six, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul wants us to feel the seriousness of this. He wants us to feel the seriousness of this. The wrath of God is God's retributive justice against sin. It's when God pays out, ounce for ounce, exact justice for sin. And the Bible describes two different forms of it. There's the active wrath of God, which is coming at the end. That's what Paul's referring to here. And then there's the passive wrath of God. The passive wrath of God is described in Romans chapter one, verses 28 through 32. And that's when God just lets us feel the consequences of breaking his design. And if you've ever walked in sexual immorality, you know what the passive wrath of God feels like. As you indulge sexual sin, it gets darker and darker. You find yourself looking at things you never thought you would. It corrodes your ability to have healthy relationships and it robs your marriage of intimacy. It not only dishonors God and hurts people, but it can drain the color from your world. Like rather than enjoying the beauty of creation or rather than appreciating a good cup of coffee or, or reading a good book, man, all you can think about is the next opportunity that you have, man, to satisfy the desires of your flesh. Sexual sin is serious. And it's not a modern phenomenon. 
So it shows up as early as Genesis chapter four when Lamech takes two wives instead of one as God commanded. There are written records of prostitution that date all the way back to 2400 BC in Babylon. In fact, it was very common in the first century for a person to participate in prostitution. You would be shocked how many of the Colossians either were prostitutes or had participated in it. You would be shocked. And we, we read that, we, we read about that in history, we think, man, like, culture was really dark back then. Right, but the truth is, I think the modern day equivalent for us is pornography. Right, it's, it's, it's essentially the same thing. It's a different action, but the idea is the same. I would like to have a sexual experience that is devoid of covenant commitment or relational intimacy. Right, and, it, and it's worth asking, like, if you sat down for coffee with somebody and they said, hey, man, I've gotta tell you, um, I, I went and I was with a prostitute last night. You'd be like, red flags, we need to get the elders involved. We need to start like constant prayer for you. We need to have constant accountability, right? Rightly so. Same person, you sat down and they said, yeah, I was on my phone last night looking at some stuff that I shouldn't have. Oh, we've all been there. Ooh. I think what Paul is saying is we, have a, we maybe have a misguided understanding of the goodness of sexuality according to God's design and the danger of it when not according to God's design. Here's the thing, sexuality is one of those areas that we think will give us life. That's why we go to it. We think it'll give us life. We think if we have the right relationship or we have the right experience that we're gonna find what we're looking for. But guys, sexual sin offers temporary pleasure, but it cannot offer abundant life. And you know that. You know that from personal experience. You've never indulged sexual immorality and afterwards thought, you know, I feel deeply fulfilled, clean, vibrant, and close to God. You've never thought that. More often than not, man, we feel empty, we feel ashamed, we feel dirty. If we walk in sexual immorality, it will impede us from experiencing the life in Christ that we were created for. But it's all around us, and many of us have it in our past, so how do we deal with it? Well, we need to play both offense and defense. Offense and defense, let me get a little practical here. Play offense by cultivating a biblical understanding of it. Sex isn't bad. It's not, it's not like something bad that only like the world gets, gets to have. It's a wonderful thing that God designed when engaged in appropriately. So if you're single, trust God's design. Don't believe the lie of the world that you're only ever gonna be satisfied and fulfilled if you're in this kind of relationship. That's just not true. And if you're married, cultivate what God has designed for marriage. So play offense. And then play defense. How do we play defense? Well, let me give you two ideas. Not really ideas, thoughts. Truths, probably. Um, first, let me encourage you to curate more carefully the content you consume. To curate more carefully the content you consume. I'm gonna get all up in your business for just a second. You're like, I thought you already in my business, Josh. We're going a little deeper. Here's the thing, guys. What you consume and what I consume makes a massive impact on what we think about and what we desire and what we do. Is the content you're consuming helping you love Christ more or is it filling you with desires for things that are of this earth? Theologian David Wells said this, worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Does the music you listen to, the articles you read, and the shows that you watch make sin look normal and righteousness look strange? Does it make the Bible seem antiquated and outdated or does it seem to make the Bible seem what it is, beautiful, divinely revealed, and true? 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul issued this command, flee sexual immorality. Do you know what flee means? It means run away. It doesn't mean sit there and watch Game of Thrones. It means turn it off. It means get rid of it. Like, can you even imagine if we did this with any other aspect of our life? 
It's like, hey, there's a dangerous pedophile on the loose in the neighborhood. Let's open the door and invite him into our home. You're like, you're ridiculous. You would never do that. And yet we sit there and we watch stuff and we listen to stuff and we read stuff that poisons our souls. Flee it. Flee it. And let me encourage you, don't curate content based on your standard. Curate it based on the Bible standard. Just because you don't feel bad about watching something doesn't mean it's okay. I watched horrible movies in college I didn't feel bad about watching. And now I'm like, I cannot believe I watched that movie. I was a Christian. My conscience was just not developed. I needed the word of God to correct me. I needed people that loved me to be like, that's not gonna help you. So my question is, is the content that you're consuming helping you cultivate a deep love abiding of Christ or is it filling your mind and your heart with things that dishonor him and wanna kill you? Oh man, Josh, you like sound so religious and crotchety and old school. And it's like, I'm just trying to apply the text and help you. Be more careful in how you curate your content. That's defense number one. Here's defense number two, confess in community. Do you have men and women who are helping you? that love you enough, men, to pray for you and to hold you accountable. Every person that I've talked to that has really made progress and achieved victory in this area has someone that is praying for them, that is caring for them and is helping them walk with the Lord. So curate the content that you're consuming. Man, and, and, and get into biblical community with people that wanna help hold up your arms. All right, verse seven. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. This is a hopeful verse. You see what Paul says? The Colossians walked in this. But do you see the tense of the verb? In these you two once walked. And here's what that means. You don't have to walk in them forever. And the Colossians had achieved victory over sexual sin, and you can too. We all have misordered sexual desires to some degree, we just do. And some of us have struggled with this acutely, but that doesn't mean it always has to be a part of your story. So we have uh, five elders that lead our church. And I love these guys. They're, they're some of the godliest, most faithful men uh, that I've ever known. You know many of them. And you, you look at them, you're like, man, I would like to be like him one day. Um, and every single one of us has sexual sin in our past, but not in our present. Because in these, you too once walked. Friends, the good news is that in the gospel, Jesus has given us everything we need to put sin to death and to walk in righteousness. And we as a church wanna walk with you in that process. So I do want you to hear the seriousness of this and be like, put it to death. But man, the good news is that we get to put that to death in community, not to earn our identity, but in response to it in Christ, okay? Verse eight, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of, after the image of its creator. So the last list was sexual in nature. This list all is speaking in nature. This is what you might call sins of the tongue. Think about it. How do we usually express anger with angry words? How do we express wrath in words? Malice, words. What is slander? Slander is when you spread, uh, you say something damaging about someone else. What is obscene talk? Speaking in a way that is offensive to God. What is lying? Deceiving someone with your words. So, so why do we commit speaking sins? Well, it's the same reason we commit sexual sins because we think we'll find life there. We think that if I lie and I exaggerate my performance and people think more highly of me, then I'll have life, right? If I join in this, this gossip at the workplace, I'll be included in the group and then, then I'll have life. If I give vent to my anger and my impatience and I shout or I raise my voice or I'm, I'm angry, then I'll feel better and I'll have relief. 
Man, we think that sinning with our words is going to give us life, but it doesn't. Oftentimes when we give vent to our anger, we just end up more angry. You ever had that experience? There's, a, there's a, a place, you may have heard of it, it's called the internet, where everyone gives vent to their anger. Has that made the world a better place? Like, is culture happier and more at peace now? No, it's like everybody is more angry than ever before. The book of James describes the tongue as a restless evil full of poison. How'd you like to be at James's church, you know? He says, our tongues are like, uh, they're like a spark that can burn a forest of relationships to the ground. So why is the Bible so serious about speaking sins? Because sexual sins we kind of get, right? Like it feels pretty bad, but speaking sins like, oh, that's like not a big deal. What's actually the same reason. So sexual sin is bad because it's a, it's a perversion of God's design. Speaking sin is bad for the same reason. Do you know in Genesis one through three, both God and Satan speak? You ever thought about this? What did God do with his words? He created life. He created beauty. He created flourishing. What did Satan do with his words? He deceived. He brought destruction, suffering, sorrow, and sin. Here's what Paul is saying. Guys, if you've been raised with Christ, use your words in the way that God uses his words. You see what he says there in verse 10, that you're being transformed into the image of your creator. So when we are raised in Christ, our call is to use our words in a way that God uses his words to bring life, to bring truth, to build up, and not to tear down and to destroy. So the question for us to ask is, man, do my words bring life to the people around me? Do my words bring life into my office? Do they bring life into my family? Do they bring life to my neighbors? Or do they bring death? All right, verse 11, last thing. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul concludes by discussing what I'll call social sins. Social sins. These are external identity markers that we elevate above our identity in Christ. You see, in the ancient world, people had an us versus them mentality. You see it in the text, Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free. The way that you felt important, the way that you found significance and meaning was by your group being better than the other groups. And here's what Paul says to that kind of idea. He says, no, 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 no. You have more in common with another Christian who is of a different gender, generation, and ethnicity than you than with a non-Christian who looks, talks, and thinks like you do. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. You see, we're tempted to look for our life in our tribe or group or our cause, but Paul's saying that's not where you need to look. He's saying, look to Christ. And when people from all different generations and ethnicities and backgrounds are looking to Christ, man, you can end up being in deep body relationship with people that you have otherwise very little in common with. You see, when you come to Christ, it doesn't erase your cultural identity, but it does transcend it. When you're raised with Christ, you're raised into the family of God. And the family of God favors no race, no nationality, no class, no culture, or no ethnicity. It favors Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it produces a beautiful mosaic unity. So Paul says, put away sexual sins, put away speaking sins, put away social sins, because you've been raised to new life in Christ. In 1 John chapter five, the apostle writes this, God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life, zoe. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. In other words, God doesn't wanna take from you. He wants to give to you. He isn't against you, he's for you. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. 
Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to kill, to steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. That's what Jesus came to do. I opened with uh, the words of Bono. So allow me to close with the words of Augustine of Hippo. Augustine was a great man of faith who lived in Africa in the 1700s. And he expressed the same sentiment that, that you too expressed. He just expressed it 1700 years earlier. Augustine is a fascinating guy. He, he spent decades of his life looking, looking for life in all the wrong places. He had a season of his life that he would describe himself as sexually addicted. He had a season of his life where he pursued education. He was brilliant. He had a season of his life where he pursued wealth and status and elevation in the Roman empire. And he kept achieving and he kept accumulating and he kept feeling empty. It wasn't until he came to faith in Christ through the prayers of his faithful mother that he finally found what he was looking for. In his confessions, one of his most famous works, Augustine wrote this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The life that you were created for is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So if you're here this morning and you've never repented and trusted in him, you're looking for life in all these other places. And I wanna invite you to lay that down and to find abundant life in him. And if you're here and your life is hidden with Christ, you've been raised with him. And as your pastor, and as somebody who loves you, let me encourage you, put to death sexual sin. Put to death speaking sin, put to death social sin because they dishonor God, they hurt you, and they impede the abundant life that you were created to know. So I just wanna invite you to bow your heads with me. And I just wanna give you an opportunity in prayer to ask God, is there some area of your life that you need to give over to him? Maybe there's a sexual sin. Maybe there's a speaking sin. Maybe there's a social sin. It's waging war against your soul. And today is the day that you say, God, help me to put it to death. Help me to walk in newness of life. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a savior who came to give, not to take. Lord, ever since the Garden of Eden, we've had a hard time believing that your purposes for us are good. Fill us with faith this morning, God that when you call us to put things to death, it's because you have greater life on the other side. And give us faith to walk. Give us faith to walk in the newness of life that you have for us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.